Well, good morning, Olive Branch. How you guys doing? Great. Thank you for coming back. We are back in. I'm back. And Jared did a great job last week, didn't he? In the last couple of weeks. That's pretty great. Have a youth. And, and uh, so just glad to be back here as we're diving back into our um, series here called Kicking Down Sandcastles. If you're new to Olive Branch, or you're checking us out today. You haven't been part of this series. We kind of want to quickly catch you up. What we've been talking about is the storms of life. The idea that there are going to be these storms that come. They're going to hit your life. And that hopefully you've prepared your life and it's a storm ready life by digging down and not, bear, not building your life on sand, but digging down and bear, uh, building your life on the rock of Jesus Christ teaching. Now, what we've been saying is to that not only do you have to hear his teaching, but you need to do and live his teaching. We need to doers of the word. And as we talk through that idea, we've been looking at one of the most famous sermons in all of the Bible, and uh, that is the Sermon on the Mount. Now, fame is a big deal in this, uh, ser- in this portion of our series because um, not only is this sermon famous, but our culture is obsessed with fame. Have you noticed that lately? There's this uh, constant desire for celebrity and to listen to celebrities, even on issues that celebrities shouldn't even be talking about that are beyond their expertise. And yet more, more and more people I know uh, have wanted to be famous than ever. And I'm not sure if that's a modern situation or ancient. When I was a kid, lots of people I knew wanted to be famous. Any of you as a kid want to be famous growing up? Maybe it was famous for, um, wow, this is the one service that's not being honest. So... uh, So there was a few of us, right? So some it, a lot, I knew kids who wanted to be famous um, because they wanted to uh, basically be actors or actresses, and they wanted to be in Hollywood and be in films. I knew people who wanted to be famous because they wanted to play sports. Mainly, it was the sports stars. That's who I primarily knew. They played. They devoted to baseball, basketball, football, something like that. And then there were the band people who wanted to be famous. They wanted to have their rock band, or their actually in my life it was grunge band, kind of take off and, and see things work. Uh, later, it was their hard hardcore band and stuff like that. Nowadays, I know most kids aren't seeking to be famous in the same ways. From what I heard is a lot of kids want to be famous not for acting, but they want to be famous for being themselves on YouTube, right? They just want to be a YouTuber or show off influence. Some kids are more interested in being famous not for being able to play baseball, but play baseball as a video game. In fact, they've been giving video game scholarships now in college for kids who are playing better and better video games. And all the teenagers in here are like, I don't know, I'm doing that now, mom. I don't need to do my homework. Scholarships. No, don't do that. Uh, education's good. And so we have this concept of fame that, man, if I was famous, things would be better. If I was famous, things would be easier. And the bottom line is fame doesn't make things easier, does it? We all know that many famous people have run into the biggest troubles. In fact, oftentimes they're most worried about what they eat because they got to stay a certain size or what they wear because they got to have the latest fashions and they got to do these things. All that stuff Jared was talking about just grows exponentially with fame. Not to mention the difficulty of being under the microscope and your marriage falls apart. And so you end up, instead of Brangelina, you end up with Brad and Angelina again. They, they divorce and they're gone. Or for all the YouTube kids out there, Pat and Jen, bye-bye. They, they split up and you're like, who is that? Just ask your kids. And so there is this, there's this sense of fame that goes on and it increases the visualness of the brokenness in your life. And so I think most of us in this room, if you're honest, you're like, no, I don't really care to be famous. I get that. Let me take it down a notch. How many of you just want to be liked by the people around you? How's that one? Yeah, 
probably everybody. I mean, I don't know if you wake up in the morning, you're like, I want everybody to hate me. And that's just like your motivation for life. I hope not. But we wake up and we go, man, I want people to like me. Maybe it's at your school. Maybe it's at your work. Maybe it's at the, uh, you know, the, 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 the pushing the, push the preschoolers walking group or whatever you're involved in. There's all kinds of places we're around people and we're like, hey, I want people to like me. And Jesus is going to tell us to be careful. Because if we build our lives on the sand of fame or the sand of people-pleasing or the sand of getting people just to like us, we're going to find out in the storms we're not going to stand. Because Jesus is concerned about our running after fame. Jesus is concerned about our people-pleasing. And, and he's concerned in a manner that he's going to teach us how we should live this life and what we should build our life on and do when it comes to this issue of fame or people-pleasing. Now, you're going to be surprised because what he's going to tell you is not necessarily, hey, just be a wallflower. Go hide in the corner. Let the world go by and just, and, and, you know, just stay safe and be quiet. No, he's not going to do that. In fact, what Jesus is going to call us to is Jesus is going to call us to have influence. He wants you and me to influence this world. In fact, we find his statement about influence here in Matthew chapter 5, beginning of verse 10. So if you want to open your Bibles up there, we're actually going to start in verse 13. We'll reference back to 10 later. But he starts off with a very popular, very well-known uh, statement. And it's about two things, namely salt and light. Here's how it reads. You are the salt of the earth. As but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under, under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, this is really interesting because if Jesus is calling you to have influence, he's using it with two different pictures, right? Salt and light. But he's also contrasting these pictures. He wants you to be the salt of the earth, he wants you to be the light of the what? The world, which means you're not the world and you're not the earth. There is a distinction between being the salt and the light and what you are illuminating and what you are kind of salting, what you're getting rubbed into. And that is the difference here that Jesus wants us to have a distinction. We're not supposed to be the world. We're not supposed to be earth, though we are shining into it, though we are involved in it and we are rubbed in like salt. Jesus is very clearly saying we need to be different. And many today, that's a struggle for some of us, right? Because some of us, we don't want to step and stand out. We were taught in junior high and high school that that's a bad idea. Don't stand out. You will end up with bad things happening to you. Just blend in, disappear, and you'll be good. And you know what's hard is as churches, we have to stand out. Because we are called to stand for certain things. We are called to live in certain ways. And that's contrary to where the culture is going, what the, what's popular. And so you and I are going to stand out. And we don't want to because guess what? We want to be liked by the people around us, right? That's the struggle. And if we are liked by the people around us, sometimes that may lead to a compromise. That may lead to us being quiet. They may lead to us to dulling and blunting the faith. But Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. This is the church that is this thing globally. And that means we should look different than the world that surrounds us. And we're going to get into what that difference looks like. Because the, the fear is really that, I, that I'm going to be name called. I mean, how many of you actually are nervous that you're going to lose privileges? Bad things are going to happen to you. You stand up for your faith at your workplace sometimes. Any teachers feel that way? Any employers feel that way? Employees? I mean, there's a sense that in our culture, you need to be secular wherever you go. 
And there's a pressure that exists of, of being called names like bigot, fundamentalist. That's a good one that's thrown around a lot. And I'm like, that's weird. Puritan, you're Puritan. And there's all these kind of weird terms that have been tossed now at the church. It's fascinating. But I want to point out that what's interesting, Jesus already told us, hey, look, being called names and, and getting bad treatment, that's in the mix. This is part of church history. This is part of the reality of just being Christians. And he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, when they persecute you, when they utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Notice he's not saying um, that they yell at you and they call you names because you're a jerk online or because you don't know how to treat people. That is obviously not what he's saying. He's saying on my account. When you live for Christ, when you're different from the world because you live for his way and how he's taught us, yeah, there are going to be bad things that happen. That's part of the reality. You should rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And that day when you die and that day when you stand before God, there is a reward and it will be huge. And you will be counted with the prophets for they so persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus is very clear saying, don't, don't think that just because you're going to get called some names, you might have some trouble. Yes, you might even get persecuted like some of our brothers in other nations where you're locked in jail for your faith and these kind of things. Don't let that deter you from being different. We are supposed to have an influence, and the only way to have an influence is to stand out. Now, the likelihood is that many of us just back away when we do. We do that wallflower thing. In fact, I think it's funny when people call, oh, you're such a fundamentalist or, or something like that, because fundamentalists, while they held very, I, I agree with much of their doctrine, with the vast majority of what they said, guess what? I don't agree with their stance toward the culture. There's the stance of the fundamentalist towards the culture was, you know what? We have our doctrine. You guys go have fun. When you're done going to hell, just let us know. And they closed the doors and built a wall and told everybody, just stay away. But what happened when the church, when they began to do that, it got into all these weird things like, you don't drink and you don't chew and you don't go with girls who do. You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and this became all about all these external things that were not necessarily scriptural. But doesn't mean we weren't supposed to engage. There's a viewpoint amongst many Christians today that we should get out of politics. Christians shouldn't be involved in the conversation with politics. We need to get out of there. Who are you to push your morality down on somebody? That's usually what I hear. Here's the problem. Law is morality with a gun. Did you ever know that? When you enshrine morality into a, it's called a law. All laws are moral. They're what you ought to do and what you ought not to do and what we especially think is best for all of society and culture. And so should Christians get out from involved conversations of morality? Of course not. We should be involved with persuasion. We should be involved with conversation. We should be involved with logic. We should be involved in the whole conversation. No, we shouldn't be yelling and screaming, but we should definitely be engaged Second, we should be engaged in, in Hollywood. We shouldn't be running away from Hollywood going, oh, what did I see? Cover my eyes, cover my ears. No, 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 no. We need to run towards it. We need to be the best writers. We need to be engaging with amazing storytelling. We need to have good acting. We need to engage with excellent scores. Guys, we are called to have influence in this world, not to hide away. Teachers, teach with excellence. Engage your students with light and enable them to see how this connects with God. Yes, administrators, stand firm and bring love. Be an influence. To not be an influence, my friends, is actually to not be a Christian. Do you hear me? 
You say, where do you get that from? I get it from the next line of Jesus. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for what? For anything. Now, some of you scientist guys are like, wait, salt doesn't lose its flavor. And there's a lot of people that get all over that because salt doesn't lose its flavor. It's a, it's a natural compound that, that stays the same as crystalline structure. And, and here's the thing, though. In the ancient world, when they got their salt, they took it out of the Dead Sea. And it was mixed in with gypsum and other white substances. And so when time went by, water got into the salt and it began to evaporate and be taken out by the, by the water. And all you got left was this tasteless powder that was still white. And so Jesus is asking this question, hey guys, how can you restore this salt to its saltiness? The answer is you can't. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus very clearly says that we should be people who are engaged in influence, that we should be bringing influence in the arts, in the sciences, in every realm of life. Now, what kind of influence is a different question, right? We don't just want to bring any old influence and we're like acting like uh, jerks, like I said, or something like that. No, we need to have influence, but Jesus clearly gives us a look into that influence. Notice that he calls those two things. You have salt and you have light. And so salt and light have a certain imagery in the ancient world. First of all, salt has multiple different uses in the ancient world, which is fascinating, but I won't get into all the details. But two of the primary uses were, were important for us. The first one was before refrigeration refrigeration, before you had ice and before you had the opportunity to put in ice boxes and all our stuff, you had to use salt to preserve your meat and your food. And so everything got salted for the sense of preservation to stop decay. And I believe Jesus is getting to that idea that we need to, we, we need to help influence the world by holding back decaying ideas, holding back decay in this world. Look, this world is filled with death. It's filled with decay. It's filled with the brokenness of the fall. And Jesus wants you and me to engage in this world in such a manner that we actually stand and resist, or in a real sense, grab hold and influence the world to stop decaying. Let me give an example. You may know somebody whose marriage is falling apart, who's rustling and they're struggling, they're not communicating well. Are you running to them to be salt to stop the decay in that marriage? Or are you just kind of backing off and letting it happen? Are you engaging with those in your work environment that are starting to do unjustified actions with their finances to go, guys, guys, this is going to destroy the company. You can't do that. Are you engaging assault? Are you running towards the issues to stop the decay, to stop the brokenness? This is hard because in this way, you'll begin to stand out. You'll look different because you're going to have to stand against ideas that are deadly, ideas that are dangerous. We'll have to, as a church, that's why we've always stood against abortion and infanticide. Because we see them as deadly ideas. How deadly? Iceland is celebrating that there are no children that have been born there with Down syndrome anymore. Not because they figured out some genetic ability, because they killed them all before they were born. And that is a reason that is growing in the United States as well. 
This is a deadly thing when we get engaged in these concepts. There are plenty of deadly ideas, and when they're released, you see the devastation, you see the death, you see the devaluing of human beings. Those things we stand and resist with a sharpness from the Word of God, with love. Now, does that mean you stand there and tell people, oh, you had an abortion, get lost? No, you grab them, you pull them in because they're hurting too, and you act as salt. We bring about a restoration. We preserve and that's our goal is to, be a, to stand against this. Now, that can make you unpopular at times, but at the same time, for those people that you're helping, for those people that you're aiding, it can give them hope. Who are you helping? What are you helping to keep from disintegrating further? That's an influence that we should have. A second use of salt is the same use that we use today, though. Very, very much so, we use it to flavor food, right? In fact, there were plenty of proverbs in the time period that food without salt is flavorless. And so Jesus calls us to be an influence by giving flavor to life. Now, I think that's kind of funny because if you were to ask the world, do you think the church is a place you'll find flavor for life? They'll be like, no, you guys don't dance, you don't chew, and you don't go with girls. You know, back to that, to that rhyme, right? That's how the world kind of views the church. It's this bunch of fuddy-duds sitting around on Sunday mornings when they could have slept in and enjoyed the game. And what we are is actually supposed to be the opposite. Now, we're supposed to engage with flavor in life. And I would tell you that what I find out in the world is probably a little bit more bland now that I've tasted both sides. Because they talk about the same things over and over. They've been writing the same songs with different beats for decades now. I love this girl, she don't love me back. I love this girl, she don't love me Whatever. It's all about sex, love, or what you name it. There's this intentionality that's kind of boring. My daughter, when she headed off to public school, and the things she noticed is it's like, when I talk to my Christian friends, we talk about interesting things. When I talk to my non-Christian friends, they just want to talk about two topics what they saw on YouTube or whatever, on their Instagrams, and, you know, who they like that day. And there's a blandness to life. You know it. You go to work with people who grumble that they've got to go to work, who look forward to the weekend because their lives are so dull, stuck in traffic, going to work, because they bought into that idea. i got to get a good job to make money, to have a house, so my kids can have a life, my kids can go to school, so they can get a good job, so they can make money, so they can have a house. To... Boring. Guys, that's not what life's about. Why do you go to work? Why has God got you where he's got you? Why, what is he calling you to do? What is the mission beyond your life that Jesus Christ has pulled you into because that gives it flavor? Get involved in the mission trip. Go see other, other places. Not because you just want to be a tourist. Oh, I saw that. Got the t-shirt. Walked away. No, so you can engage in people's lives. So you can help and make a difference. So you can influence and flavor those worlds too, guys. We are called to bring some life to things. We're called to wake up. Stop being a sourpuss. Put on some joy because you're saved. You got nothing to worry about in eternity. You got nothing that's holding you back if you've trusted Jesus Christ. You should be the happiest people in the world. Amen? They should be like, what is with you? Like the economy just fell apart. God's got this. Weirdo. You know, that's fine. I want to give flavor to life. I want to help people see why they go to work. I want to help people engage and get excited to know what love truly is, to know what kindness really is, to understand what this gentleness and faithfulness stuff really is. And finally, when we have this, then we're not just going to be salt that has this strong negative thing. We're going to be an influence that's attractive. 
You know, I was really bummed that Jared got to preach twice because he's so attractive. I just kidding. I said that last night. He's like, preach it. Now he's yelling at me. <laughs> Don't mean that kind of attractive. What I actually want to, what I mean is that people look to you. Look how Jesus puts it. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a stand and it lights the whole house. Now, what Jesus is getting at here is interesting because he's saying, look, you're a city on a hill. Now, if you lived in the ancient world, you would know that there's a big difference between a city on a hill and where you would be normally walking. Imagine with me, you're outside. It's a dark storm. It's kind of a dark night. The clouds are overcast. There's not a lot of moonlight or maybe the, the stars and everything is behind the clouds. As you're walking, you're with one other person maybe, and it's a dirt, dusty road, and it's winding up through hills, and there's crevices around you, and suddenly next to you, a bush goes, what would you do? Run! That's what you would do. You take off. Because you don't know if it's a wild animal. You don't know if it's a thief about to attack you. In the ancient world, when you walked around at night, that was a bad idea, especially outside of a city. So if you saw a city on a hill, it was a beacon of light that you were attracted to. You headed toward that direction as fast as you could because in there was a walled place that was going to protect you. There was going to be hospitality and a place to sleep and food. It was safety. It was attractive. Who's running to you when they have trouble in their life? Who's seeking your advice and asking you for aid? If you have that happening, then you are being a light to the world. And when you let them in, Jesus says, then you don't just hide your light. You're like, yeah, I'm telling you about this, but I'm not going to tell you it's from Jesus. No, you open it up. You let the light shine. You illuminate. You give knowledge. You should be some of the most educated people in the world. You should understand why things are what they are, and you should be able to explain it from the Bible. Do you guys not realize when you do that, you're explaining it from the most genius person in the world? You ever thought about that? Jesus is a genius. It's like, you're not a genius. He's a spiritual guy. No, Think about how much of our English language, think about how many of the stories that you know that Jesus taught they survived 2,000 years. What's Einstein got on Jesus? E equals MC squared. Sweet. Explain it to me. Explain the prodigal son. Tell the story. How does it affect your life? Einstein blew up a couple of cities with his equation. Jesus transformed the world with the love that came through his disciples. Jesus is a genius. He makes Yoda look like a puppet. I mean, to be quite honest. I, that's the joke, right? <laughs> Why do we hide the genius of Jesus? He says this is like putting a lamp under a basket, not illuminating the world for people to understand and see. Don't hide the influence. Let it out. Who are you influencing? What are you preserving? In what way is your light shining? Because this is the call that we have to be an influence. But you know what? You can't just be any old influence. You have to be influenced, but you have to do it with humility. Because if you're caring for people and you're helping people, you, the people will be attracted to you. They will come to you, but you need to remain with humility. And so Jesus tells us, yes, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, this is the first time Matthew uses the word Father, and he's doing so because he wants to highlight something. He wants more people to be able to call God the Father. He wants more people to know that our works are not about just pointing to us. It's about pointing 
to God. And this means that you and I need to glorify God by attaching the good works to the gospel. The gospel has to be associated with this. You don't just do good things and people go like, why are you doing that? Oh, nothing. No reason. I don't know. You figure it out. <laughs> no, you need to let them know. Years ago, I, I had the opportunity, it, w- it was given to me, uh, um, the, a man had died and he had actually uh, given to me this very large telescope. I mean, this, this thing is a big old honking telescope. Like I pull it out and all my guy friends are like, that's so cool. So we were at a small group and we finally grabbed it and we took it upstairs in my house and we set it up to kind of angle it outside to, to look out at the stars. And as we're looking just through the viewfinder, this thing is so big that the stars that we would look at would move. They just fly straight across. And so you had to turn it on so that it would track with the, with the astronomical objects. Even the moon moved too fast to stay on it. And so we would, we got the thing set up, we plugged it in, and next thing we know, we're trying, it was like, why is this thing not moving? What's going on? And somebody goes, you smell that? It had burned out the motor just from the electricity. And I was so bummed. Only time we ever tried to use it. Ever since then, it just sits in my, it sits in my closet, and I'm praying for some astronomy geek to show up one day and fix it for me. But What's funny is we switched over to a little one that I had gotten with it. And so we were able to look at the, at the moon and some cool stuff. Now, both of those big one and little one had a label on them. And it's, the label said the same thing. Do not aim this at the sun. You'd think that's duh, but that means somebody out there did it once, right? So it's do not aim this at the sun. Well, here's the thing. Obviously, but I can aim it at the moon. And why I can see the moon is because it's the sun's rays that bounce off the moon and come to you. Nobody can look directly at God. People cannot see God lest they would die because his holiness and his goodness will come out against our sin and our evil. So God set us into the world through Jesus to be a light to the world. You are like the moon. And so you don't glory in your own light. You point back to the source like the moon points to the sun. And so as you do your good works, as you do these things, you point back as the moon would point to the sun. You point back with the gospel that your father would be glorified. And if you do this and you begin to do this and you start pointing back, get ready. People will tell you, it has nothing to do with Jesus. You're just a really good person. Anybody ever receive that one? And it's a little annoying because you're like, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. If you knew me, you know I'm not a good, oh, I do know you. You're a really good person. So stop it. What you're seeing is Jesus. But here's the danger. You can fall into the, yeah, I'm a good person, into the feeling like you're looking good. And we don't want to fall into the sand of looking good. You want to make sure that you are standing firm in, hum- in humility. You ever had that situation where you, you were actually not looking good? You know, you told your kids, you heard your kids talking one day and they throw out this cuss word and you're like, hey, we do not cuss in our house. He's like, sorry, you know, and then you go turn around two hours later, you said the same word to somebody else, and your kid goes, hey, we don't cuss in this house. You're like, do what I say, not what I do. You ever use that line? Hope not. I have. Anyway, so the, uh, here's the point. We're hypocrites, but Jesus wasn't. He did what he said. He shined the light. He was the salt. He did these very things he's calling us to do. In fact, he was so good. He would make this statement that continues on. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have, could not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
which is fascinating. What Jesus is saying is when you look at the Old Testament, when you read this thing, what you have is you're seeing me. I am the, I am the law. I am the prophets. When you see me, you see the law and the prophets lived out. I'm that good. I don't preach to you anything I didn't do. And so many Christians have seen this text and gone, whoo, that's awesome. I'm free to live however I want. I'm free from the law. Don't lock me down. I'm under grace. That, everything in the law, that's all legalism. You can't point to the Old Testament to me. That's legalism. And yet Jesus doesn't let us off that hook. He actually goes on to say, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, is going to pass from the law until all is accomplished. So, hey, guess what, guys? The law is with us till Jesus gets back. It's not going anywhere. Not even a dot or a, a tittle. These are the smallest markings in the Hebrew language. None of it's disappearing. In fact, he goes on to tell us, don't even relax the laws. You know, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. This is crazy because suddenly where you're like, wait a minute, don't relax it? What does he mean by relaxing? Well, this is what the Pharisees would do. They would take it and say, just obey the words themselves. What do you mean by that? If it says, do not give false witness, what that means is if you're sitting in a stand and you've been called as a witness, don't give false witness. It has nothing to do with lying, has nothing to do with these other things. And so they were restricted just to the words. And so it was easy. I never murdered anybody. I've never been on trial to give false witness. I'm good to go. And see how it made it easier? Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is going to take it deeper. He's going to take it further, as we'll see next week. But what we see here is Jesus saying, you can't do that. Don't relax it. And don't play the, well, I obey the greater commandments. I obey the great commandment of love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Oh, and I love others like Jesus loved me. That's the great commandment, and I do that. No, he says, don't even relax the least of the commandments. That means that one about stoning your teenagers when they're really bad, you can't, you can't drop that one. I'm just kidding. But it, but it does bring up a question because he tells us that we need to teach it and do it. That Jesus is really calling us to teach it and do it because then you'll be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus wants us to be good, not just to look good. But wait a minute, doesn't that mean then I've got to go eat kosher and I've got to let my hair grow out and I've got to wear a yarmulke and I've got to make sure that I'm going to a temple and I start killing animals to take the blood and, and cover my sins? I mean, isn't that what you just told me? The law's not gone, so now I, I, I have to live this way. No, 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 Jesus fulfilled that. So I can do whatever I want then. No, no, no. We have to live with the law. Which is it, dude? Yeah, I'm confused, right. Let's walk through this for a second. One of the most complicated, confusing aspects. I'm going to try to boil it down for you. Obviously, Jesus fulfills the prophecies. You can go back to Christmas, look at a bunch of those prophecies. You can uh, find our apologetics class, and they oftentimes will roll through prophecies. They'll give you the notes. But what I want you guys to understand is when it comes to the law, let's divide the law into three segments. Because the law really kind of pulls together into three categories. The first one, the first category is the, law of, uh, the laws that deal with identity. These are the laws that would make you look different. Now, in our world, we use like a flag. To, and when you fly the American flag, you're really saying a certain thing because we're different from the rest of the world in the way that we deal with religion and free speech and freedom of the press. And we're different in the way that we are allowed to cr criticize our government and how we allow all these different things. Now, freedom is a big deal. And this has represented freedom in all kinds of countries. And when we look at this, it's an identity marker. 
When you wave that flag, it's an identity marker for your life. You're saying, I'm an American. For a Jewish person, their identity marker was the clothes they wore, the food they ate, the circumcision they went through. All of this identified them as Jewish. It was like their flag. And so as they went under this flag, they lived out a Jewish life. Now, the only person who ever did that was Jesus. Every Jewish person broke their identity laws at some level except for Jesus. And so in a real way, theologically, we say that Jesus is the truest Jew. He's true Israel. When you see Jesus, you see what it is to be Jewish. He did it perfectly. Now, here's the thing. While the Jewish people had the law that they identified by, we as Christians, we identify ourselves by Jesus. And so when you follow Jesus, that means he's the one that's going to set you apart. The law set apart all the Jewish people from the nations around them. They looked very different from how they dressed with only one piece of clothing that was from one fiber. They looked very different from the food that they ate and the way that they did their lives. For Christians, we look different, not because of the laws we follow, but because of the one that we follow. Jesus fulfilled the laws, but he is what makes us different in this world. And that's going to look different in different places. Why do you think we always have been the more modest of the people in a culture? Because when we follow Jesus and we go, wow, women are trying to get their value from looking skimpy or men are trying to get their value from looking buff, you know, we're going to take a step back. We're going to find our value in Jesus. And Jesus is going to change the way that we view ourselves and change the way that we dress ourselves and change the way that we speak about ourselves. When you have a relationship with Jesus, he makes you different from the culture because he wants you to be salt and light. Not the same as the world. And that difference that is created is a difference that's important because it's led by Jesus, not by law. And as you find that Jesus fulfills us and he leads you to be different, those differences will begin to appear. Second is a set of laws called the moral laws. We understand the moral laws from the Ten Commandments. And since I couldn't find a stone tablet, we'll just use a modern tablet as my representation of the laws, right? And the idea is, what's fun is it even shines light. So, no, see... The idea is there was these Ten Commandments, and these Ten Commandments were understood in the moral law that this is how everybody should live. And when they looked at the moral law, Jesus would sum these up in two ways. He'd say, look, the first five, the first, five, the first six represent love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The next represent love your neighbor as yourself. And when you see this, he says, this sums up the commandments. What you have here is this idea that you should love God and love others. And then you live out the moral law. Well, Jesus fulfilled that. He was perfect in his righteousness, perfect in his following the law. So much so that when he died on the cross, we truly believe that when you trust in Jesus, he gives you that goodness. He gives you that righteousness. It's like standing in line after you've died. And you're waiting, and you don't know what's going on, but you know this is what everybody has to do. And as you're waiting, it just keeps inching forward, inching forward. And suddenly somebody hands you your report card for life. And it's got all the different subjects and how you were supposed to live and all the different moral ways you were supposed to do that. And and I know I'd be looking at mine going like, F, F, F. How do you get an F minus? You know, it's like, that would just be bad. And the closer the line got to God's judgment throne, as I'm getting closer and suddenly I'm the last, I'm standing in line, I'm next. My name's about to be called to walk in to hand God my report card for life. And I'm thinking, I failed. Jesus goes, hey, what? Here, let's trade. And he ta- I take his and he takes mine. 
And I look down at his A plus, A plus, A plus, A plus, GPA, 1,743, because he's a genius. And so, and suddenly I walk into the throne room of God, and I hand him my life report card, and what he sees is all of Jesus' marks given to me. And that's what it means to trust in Jesus Christ, to give you the righteousness that you don't have. So when you stand before God, he has taken all the junk for you, all the failure for you. He is that good. He is that righteous. Now, that means when I follow Jesus, I can do whatever I want then, right? No, if you follow Jesus, you won't wind up being immoral. You'll wind up being moral. You'll wind up loving God. You'll wind up loving others. And you'll wind up doing it in a way that fulfills the law completely. And you won't break it. You'll be like your Lord who you follow. The third set of laws are these final laws that are actually dealing with sacrifices. And so when they took a sacrifice, they would cut the, the throat of an animal and they would pour out the blood because they needed to be forgiven of their sins. Because when you sin, something's got to die. And so this animal would die in your place. Or you would bring an animal and you would slit its throat and pour out its blood so that you would give it as an offering because they didn't have the, the same kind of monetary system we do. And they would turn it in as a way of saying, I'm given to the priests, I'm given to the Levites, I love God, this is my Thanksgiving, worship time. Here, die animal, here you go, let's have a barbecue. And that's pretty much how worship went at the temple. But here's the thing, Jesus is our sacrifice, on the cross, he bore our sins. He got in the way. He died so that we wouldn't die spiritually. And so we don't need a sacrifice like that. And so we don't sacrifice animals. We still give offerings. We still give tithes. We still give out of our flocks. We still give out of our stuff. It just looks different. But here's the thing. Jesus represents all of that giving. He gave his life. He gave everything. And so he represents that gift. And when we follow him, you know what you become? A sacrifice. And you fulfill the law. Because you live in a sacrificial manner. Paul said you're a living sacrifice. That's a life surrendered to God. Every aspect of who you are, every part of what you do, when you're in the world and you're working, you become a sacrifice for others. That's why you treat yourself unfairly as a sacrifice of love. Jesus is our sacrifice, and we are willing to even sacrifice ourselves that others may know him. We become the very sacrifice that our Lord is. And in that way, when you do this, you become salt and light. You're different. You're sacrificial. You're stopping and preserving. It's the same image. Jesus is just saying, Don't, I'm not replacing the law. I'm giving you the way to live it out. That's beyond the letters and the words. And this is why, because he comes and he's able to live through us. You see, here's the, here's the difficult challenge Jesus lays at the end of his message. He tells us, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And everybody there at the kingdom of heaven, everybody there went, we're doomed. Because the scribes and the Pharisees, these guys are the best of the best. And Jesus says, no, you're going to be even better. And the only way to do that is to have the true good dwell in you. The true good live in you to become a reflection of the sun so that what goodness comes out of you is actually true goodness. And when that happens, you actually start to be truly moral. But because it's not yours, you're able to stay humble and not become holier than thou or some righteous jerk 
because it's not yours. You're sharing it from another. And it's not about laws and rules. It's far more like my sons and showers. You say, what? You know, when your kids are little, if you have a son, you, you take them and you bathe them. You bathe them in the sink, then you bathe them in the bath, and you take pictures, and it's really cute because little babies who are clean are really cute. And then they get a little bit older, and as like toddlers and you know, elementary schoolers, you say, you need to go take a bath. And they go, no, they don't want to take a bath. And they fight you in taking a bath. And so you make a law. You will take a bath every night. I don't want to take a bath. Why do we got to take a bath every night? Right? They act like we do with laws. And then somewhere around, something shifts. Suddenly they start taking their own showers. And you're like, what is going on? Why are you taking a shower all the time? Oh, I just want to be clean. Really? And then you find out, oh, they think a girl's cute. <laughs> right? There's a shift. It's not in, the, it's not in the, the laws that shifted anything. It's the relationship that shifts. When your relationship with Christ shifts, it goes from I have to do this and I have to do that to I want to do this. I want to do that. Because I want to follow Christ. I want to be moral. I want to be a sacrifice for others as he was a sacrifice for me. I want to give like he gave to me, man. I want to shine my light. I want to be salt in this world. I want to help people and preserve people. I want this. It's not because I have to. It's because we follow one who enables us to want to. And when we know it comes from him and not from us, you stay humble and you don't build your house on the sand of fame or everybody liking me. You build your house on the rock of his word and suddenly you stand firm that the goodness that's even coming through you is coming through you, not from you. And now we can walk in a humbleness. And so as we get out there and we want to shine our light into Corona and we get engaged in Live Week, the challenge for you guys is not to just let it shine on Olive Branch. No, the opportunity is to let it shine on Jesus, to bring the gospel out there so other people can find what we found, be saved from their sin, be accepted into heaven and be released. That is the goal. So go be salt. Go be light. Let your light shine. And when they see it, make sure you point back to the source. The genius Jesus, our Lord and Savior and his Father in heaven. Amen, church? Let's bow our heads. God, we thank you for just the chance to just dive into this, um, this passage that is so challenging and complicated in so many ways. We ask that you would indeed continue to help us become a people who are not shining our own goodness, not trying to be good on our own, but allowing you to live through us. Father, would you help us to be a light to this world? Would you help us to be salt? God, would you help us to preserve those people and those good things in this world? Would you help us to illuminate things? Would you help us to be flavorful, to be a sacrifice, to be different in you? God, to be people who honestly are just good because you live in us. In all this, Lord, use us, we pray. Use us as you would, that you would be glorified. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.